morning. How are we doing? Silent? Okay. Good to hear. Or good to not hear, I guess I should say. Uh, if you have your Bibles open to John 1, keep them there. That's where we're going to be this morning. Thank you, Nick, for reading and praying. I'm going to start by just asking you this question. What do you believe is the most important thing about you? I mean, go ahead, pull out your resume, fill out your imaginary baseball card, think of every stat, every description, every identifier or distinguishing characteristic of you that makes you you, and which one out of all of them do you believe is the most important thing about you? I'm arguing there is one, and I'm arguing because the Bible argues that, that one rises above all the rest. There's one thing about you that whether you've spent years thinking about or honestly have never once considered that is the most important thing about you. There's one thing that shapes who you are. There's one thing that guides the decisions that you make. There's one thing that sets your priorities. It determines the direction of your life. It clarifies your hopes. The single most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus Christ. And I'm betting that some of you already disagree with me when I say that. Because Jesus, though surely he means a lot to some people, especially those who believe in him, surely he can't be the most important thing in everyone's life. Because what about those who question him? What about those who don't know of him? What about those who don't believe in him? Regardless, I'm still saying what anyone believes about Jesus is the most important thing about them because Jesus is simply unavoidable. He's unavoidable because he's bigger, he's more prevalent, he's more important, he's more present, he's more sovereign and more involved than honestly you've ever grasped, regardless of what you believe or how you feel about him. We're excited today because we're starting our journey as a church through a book, this book of John. And I'll tell you at the start that John is fully aware of this truth. John knows as he wrote this book that what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. So he sat down and wrote a book to basically answer that question, who is this Jesus? As you'll get to see, as we make our way through this book, everyone, and I mean everyone in the book of John is wrestling with who Jesus is. What you won't see is anyone come even close to grasping who Jesus actually is until the end of the book, and that includes John, our author. And John had a front row seat to all of this. I want you to know as we go through this book, right, what we read in John, what we'll study, it's not passed down information, it's not secondhand information. John was right there. He was there sitting by Jesus' feet as he taught. He, was, he stood there in, in shock and discomfort when Jesus overthrew all the tables in the temple. He's the one, he was one of the 12 who was passing out food when 5,000 were fed. He's one that, that collected one of the 12 baskets of leftovers with his own two hands. He stood speechless and in awe when he saw with his own two eyes Lazarus walk out of his grave. He reclines against Jesus as they eat the last supper. He was there at the betrayal. He was there at the trial. He watched the nails being driven into Jesus' hands and feet. He literally talked to Jesus while he hung on the cross. And he was there talking with, eating with, hanging out with Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. And still, it isn't until after all that did he see and know and realize and believe who Jesus is. And so wanting you not to make his mistake, he wrote his own account, he wrote his own book, and he tells us why he wrote it. In John chapter 20, he writes, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose is so that you would know. His purpose is clear. He comes right out and says it. If what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you, then he wants you to get it right. And so his goal for you is to know Jesus more and more and more than you ever have before. And this purpose is woven throughout the entire book. And John's purpose for this book is to give you life. And he knows that real life, eternal life in heaven, is not something that is earned by morality or goodness or by you being awesome. 
No, real life, abundant life, life that carries on for eternity even after you die is only found in knowing God. And you can only know God by knowing Jesus, who's God in the flesh. And so John, cut to its core, is nothing more than a book about Jesus. And it needs to be nothing more than that, because in being that, it's a book about everything that we need. Now I understand, as we start this this morning, I understand there's a, there's a variety of needs in this room this morning, as there are in this room every time we gather. And room to size, some of you are in here this morning, and you're as healthy as you've ever been. And some are facing an illness that scares you. Some of you, some of you are in a season in your marriage that it's just bliss and peace, and others, they're, 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 it's a struggle. You need help badly. Some of you are wrestling with apathy. Others just need to slow down. Some of you are struggling with lust. Some of you with anger. Others with materialism. The list goes on and on and on. And maybe, maybe you're one of those that you were hoping that we would address those things really specifically and head on with our fall series. And I want to address that as we launch John. Because I want you to know, man, your struggles and your questions and your needs are incredibly important to us. And so I, honestly, there may be some time in our future for really specific sermon series topics. I can't say either way, but there's something that I simply cannot wait for you to discover. There's something that I cannot wait to learn again new, anew myself, and that is this amazing truth. When you understand more about who Jesus is and you submit yourself to those truths, it has a massive ripple effect on the rest of your life. It's a twofold process that's awesome to watch. The phase one is this, that when, when God just pulls back the curtain for you and you understand a truth about Jesus, whether it's a reminder or for the first time, and phase two is you believing that truth by faith and determining that you need to rearrange your life because of it. And when those two things happen, man, conflicts melt. Sin actually loses its power over you. Jesus starts doing amazing things in you and in your heart and your life and your marriage. Peace replaces anxiety. Steadiness replaces angst. Faith replaces doubt. Forgiveness replaces bitterness. And it's all because you have Jesus in his rightful place. So as we go through John, I just, I just want us all to be in awe of Jesus. And our, our goals for this book, I'm going to let you know, they're clear and they're simple. First is this. For those who haven't yet surrendered their lives to Jesus, placing their faith and trust in him for forgiveness and eternal life, we're praying and trusting that they will give their lives to the Jesus we meet in John. Listen, we're, we're unashamedly about Jesus around here. Okay, so I'm telling you right now, the whole point of going through this book is that if you don't know him, it's for you to know him. And the second goal is much of the same for those who have surrendered their lives to Christ, for those who call themselves followers of Jesus. We're praying and trusting that you will get to know him more and more and more, and that as you do, you will put and keep Jesus in his rightful place. By the time we are done with this book, man, by the time we're done today, I hope it is crystal clear to all of you why we are so overtly about Jesus around here. It's because he's so much greater, he's so much better, he's so much more powerful and more awesome than anything else out there, especially anything you can muster on your own. And in this book about Jesus, we're going to get to know him better. We're going to see his immense power. We're going to see him incredibly angry. We're going to read about him destroying cultural standards. We're going to see him display levels of compassion that were before unheard of. We're going to read, and read him make these intensely powerful claims about himself. And more than anything else, we're going to see his unchanging, unflinching, uncompromised, and unlimited authority. Because more than any other book in the Bible, I would argue, you get to see a picture in John of Jesus' supreme authority. All the Bible references this. All the Bible speaks of it. All the Bible affirms it. But in John, you actually get to see it. 
It's on every page, it's in every story, it's in every nuanced reaction and quote and statement and move. And so John, starting his book, starts in an expected place. He just wants to introduce the main character. But you see, John doesn't want his readers to make the mistake that he made. John doesn't want his readers to be like the people in the story, those people on the fence, those people unsure and wrestling with who this Jesus really is. And so before he even gets to his story, he's going to answer the most important question, who is Jesus? And that's where he started in verse 1. So look again with me at verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now I want us to make sure we catch how John starts his book here. There are four books in the Bible that cover the life, ministry, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. These, are, these Jesus books are called the Gospels. And of the Gospels, Mark is the shortest. And that book fo- focuses exclusively on just the three years of Jesus' ministry. But Matthew and Luke, the other two besides John, are more expansive, right? They cover the story of Jesus' whole life. And so Matthew and Luke will begin their stories with the birth of Jesus, which is why every year around Christmas, you're going to hear people teaching and reading from uh, the opening chapters of Matthew and the opening chapters of Luke. But you know who you don't hear from around Christmas much? John. And the reason is why you'll find nothing specific in this chapter about Bethlehem. There's no mention of angels. There's no mention of shepherds or wise men. So what's going on here? Is John anti-Christmas? Is he just just Ebenezer Scrooge and everybody? See, John's not against the birth story of Jesus. He has no bones to pick with that. He just chooses to focus somewhere else. Because remember, you've got to think about why he's writing. His intentions are to clearly tell you who Jesus is. And so he wants to open his book by telling you that Jesus' story didn't begin in Bethlehem. The story of Jesus doesn't start in a manger. And he uses really specific language to make sure you get it. He's, there's something he's doing here on purpose. What are the first three words in John? In the beginning. Those are important because those are the same three words that begin the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God already was. In the beginning, God had already been there. In the beginning, it's clear that everything gets its start and origin from God. And John is telling you right now, the story of Jesus doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It begins before creation even existed. So he writes... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and He was God, He was with God in the beginning, which is all perfectly clear, not confusing the first time you read it, right? Don't worry, we're going to unpack this together. Here's what John's getting at. Words have always been the most efficient and effective form of revelation. Here's what I mean. I can't read your thoughts this morning. I could misunderstand your body language. I could guess your opinion on something and be totally wrong. But if you come right out and tell me what you're thinking with your words, then the mystery's gone. We've often used, we always use words to reveal what's going on in our hearts and minds. We use words to tell others what we're thinking, what it is that we're feeling, what it is that we're believing and struggling with and rejoicing in. And God has always revealed himself to us by means of word. Whenever he'd call out prophets in the Old Testament, he'd give them messages to speak on his behalf. And though these messages would sometimes contain these miraculous displays or object lessons, they always contained word. And when John uses the title, the word here, he's referring to none other than Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself to us. In John 14, Jesus himself says that anyone who's seen him has seen the Father. Words are always made up of letters, right? And in Revelation 1, we're told that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. 
which is to suggest, right, that he is the fullness of revelation. He's the fullness of word is given to us in Jesus. And this is completely clarified for us in Hebrews 1. We're going to put this on the screens for you because it's a very important point. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of being, of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful what? What? Thank you. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. John is opening his book by making this statement. Jesus Christ, the literal word of God, is God's last and fullest word to humanity. Do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know what God wants from you? Do you want to know about eternity and life after death and what God has to say about those things? Do you want to know how God wants you to live out of these questions that humans have been asking since the beginning of time? The good news is this. God has not set back and let us try to figure all this out on our own. God actually moved towards us. He came for us. He even became one of us in order to reveal himself fully to us. And if you want the answers to those questions and more, it's undeniably clear you find them in Jesus Christ. Because he's the last word. He's God's great and final message to humanity. And in his grace, God has given us his word, his Bible, to reveal to us his final and eternal world, word, Jesus Christ. Now more than being just the final word, John wants you to know that Jesus was the first word as well. That's why he's called the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. It's because he's not some closer that God sent to finish the job. He's always been. That's why John writes, the word was with God. The word was God. He's always been. And so I want us to put ourselves in John's shoes for a second. Just in case we're still doubting his strategy to open his book. Because I want you to think about what John saw. Because John for three years wrestled with who he thought Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was from God. He knew that Jesus had power unlike anything he'd ever seen. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And though all those seem like compliments, they are way less than the reality of the fullness of Jesus. And so John doesn't want to open his book by telling you about a birth, lest you think that's where Jesus' story begins. Because if you start in the manger, you're already behind in John. You already have too small a view of Jesus. And so when John sits down to write his story, there'll be no talk of a beginning in Bethlehem because the Jesus he knows is so much bigger than that. The Jesus he's writing about finds his origins in eternity because he's always been. And so right off the bat, John takes us back to the beginning of time itself and tells us that in the beginning was Jesus, and it gets better, right? Look at verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, right? For those of you who know it, I want you to think back to the creation story in Genesis 1. How did God create the world? Did he work? Did he labor? Did he sweat? Did he toil? No, what did he use? He used word. He said words. He said, simply said, let there be light, and there was light. And John is telling you right there that the word that God spoke in the beginning, that creative power, that was Jesus. It was through Jesus that everything was made. This is just a facet of why what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. This is why he's unavoidable. Because verse 3 tells us right here that you exist because he said so. You didn't actually think you had a say in that, did you? You haven't been living your life with this notion that that somehow you created yourself and that that you decided when and where you were going to be born, right? 
Jesus did that for you. Without him, nothing that has been made, nothing was made that has been made, John says. And he goes farther in verse 4 when he writes, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Here's a really profound statement. There's no greater need for humanity than life. Shocking, right? I mean, without it, we don't exist. This isn't rocket science, okay? But John is making the statement that life is found in Jesus. Not just that he created life when he created the world, but that he is the source and keeper of life. And we're discovering together that this theme is prevalent throughout the book. He wants you to know that all life, physical and spiritual, finds its source in Jesus. So just to make sure we understand this, let's, let's go back to elementary science class for a bit, okay? What is required for life to exist? Well, first you need light, right? Man, that sun burns up everything. Man, it goes out, everything would be dead soon. So we need light. We need air. We need water. We need food. We need those four things. You lose any of those four, it doesn't take long for life to be impossible. Now, I want you to hear how Jesus is described in John. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says he's the light of the world. In John chapter 3, in John 20, he gives the breath of the Holy Spirit. In John 4, he gives the water that quenches our thirst and wells up into eternal life. In John 6, he is the bread of life that came down from heaven. And in John 14, he's life itself. Listen, there's a reason that we're telling you that John is a gospel that leaves no doubt. John's not keeping anything behind the scenes. He's playing all his cards. He's going out of his way to tell you that everything in all creation and for all eternity exists because of and about and for Jesus Christ. This world exists because of Jesus and for Jesus, that you exist because of Jesus and for Jesus, and in him is everything you'll ever need. John knows there's going to be opposition to this. His book is full of it, and so he addresses that as well in this introduction. Look at verse 5. He says, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There's another recurring theme we're going to see all throughout the book of John. And it's, th- it's these themes of light and darkness. In John, God is light. And so Jesus, as God in the flesh, is the light of the world. And all throughout John, we're going to see that goodness and righteousness aren't afraid of the light, but openly exist in them. And in John, the kingdom of Satan is represented by darkness. Because evil has its way in the darkness. The world needs Jesus to come because it's shrouded in darkness. And John says here, that Jesus came into an environment that neither received nor wanted him. I mean, I want you to remember, right? Even though he could have stopped at any time, there wasn't exactly a shortage of people who wanted Jesus dead when he went to the cross. In fact, there were plenty of people who were happy to see him killed on that day. And this world has attacked him and had attacked his people and attacked his teachings and attacked everything that he stands for from the day he showed up. But despite all that, John wants you to know that Jesus remains undefeated. For he tells us that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It cannot overcome it. Now, the, the, the word that we translate there as overcome has two meanings in the original Greek language, and both are powerful. The first meaning is, is simply this, that the darkness has not understood him. And all throughout John, we're going to read about people who did not understand what Jesus was up to, who did not understand what he was saying, who did not understand why he was doing the things that he was doing, and instead of trying to get a better understanding, they just reject him for it. Chapter 7 through 12 of this book, we're going to read how the opposition to Jesus just keeps getting more and more and more intense until they're actually, little groups are forming and meeting in secret trying to figure out how they're going to kill this guy. Because darkness rarely enjoys being exposed by the light. Now the second meaning of the word is just as it's translated for you. 
that the darkness simply cannot overcome the light of Jesus. Just think about it, right? Darkness always loses when light is introduced. There's not a darkness heavy enough or deep enough to dispel the light from even the smallest flashlight. In fact, all darkness does is make light more vivid. Four weeks ago uh, this week, or four years ago this week, I went uh, with a group of young adults from this church on a mission trip to Berlin, Germany. And while we were on this trip, we stayed at a hostel in the city of Berlin. And though this hostel was in Berlin, it was not in a setting that you would guess. Because in this portion of the city, out of nowhere, there's just all of a sudden there's this really large section of woods. And the hostel was located in the heart of the woods, way back off the road. So you didn't feel like you were in a city at all when you were there. Well, on our first night there, we, we get off the bus stop that we were told to get off, and we walked back to the hospital down this lit up uh, tra- path. And this trip was like a mile, mile and a half. It was a really long trip. We carried all our bags. And someone staying there told us that if we would just have gotten off one stop earlier, there's a path through the woods that would be a shortcut right to the hospital. But we were spending our entire days traveling in a foreign city with no cars. So when they said the word shortcut, it sounded so good, it felt like somebody actually was massaging my ear. Okay? And so the next night, the group of us were heading back, and we, we did. We followed these instructions. We got off one stop earlier. Right? And, we, and we used the street lamps out there to find this path in the woods, and we find it, and we start down it, and we quickly discover something we probably should have realized. That really dense, dark woods covered with trees that have all their leaves on them still make for a really dark walk at night. Now, I'm talking pitch dark. Like you can't see where you're going at all. And remember, we'd never walked this path before. As you might guess, this didn't go well. Right? There's, a, there's a couple of us that got split up. And even the ones who made it back to the hostel, it took us way longer than had we just walked the longer lit up path. The other group that we lost, at some point in the darkness, they just took a random turn. I don't know how they did it. They ended up a couple miles away at the McDonald's we'd just eaten dinner at. They got nowhere, right, after walking for an hour and a half. On top of this, right, I was in the group that actually made it to the hostel. We get back to the hostel. The lady managing it said, well, did you come in contact with any wild boars out there? Any wild what now? And she's like, yeah, there's wild boars all over this woods. Okay, so what do you think we did the next night? Oh, we took the shortcut. We're dumb people, okay? We, we're still doing that, right? Besides, I didn't have uh, data there. I didn't take time to research how fast boards were, but I knew I was faster than the people I was with. Okay, so that's all I needed to know, all right? But this time, okay, someone downloaded this, this little flashlight app from their phone. Okay, remember it was 2012. Phones didn't have flashlights on them already. You had to download an app. Uh, and during the day, if you turned that light on, you wouldn't even know it. It was this dinky, nothing light. It, just, it had no power. But at night in those woods, in the thick of that darkness, man, that lit up our entire path. And we just strolled through those woods like we owned them. And that's what John wants you to know before you read the book. He says, it's going to look like darkness is winning. As you go through this, this this opposition to Jesus is going to grow. His own disciples won't always get him. Large crowds will, will claim to follow him and then just moments later turn on him. He will be betrayed. He will be arrested. He will be put through a joke of a trial. He will be beaten and whipped mercilessly. Nails will be driven into his hands and his feet. He will suffer and die exposed before a crowd of people cheering his death. And John says, before you read any of that, you need to know this. Darkness has not overcome the light. It just makes the light more vivid. Because Jesus will shine in this book. 
His righteousness will envelop the false self-righteousness of the Pharisees. His power will overwhelm the empty, fake, nothing power of religion. His might will be displayed over nature and over the seas and over illness and death. His compassion will glow in a culture that's obsessed with law. And right when you think that his light has been snuffed out for good on the cross, three days later it will burst forth in such glorious radiance that darkness has never and will never be able to overcome it again. Because that's the thing about Jesus. He's undefeated and he will stay that way for all eternity. Make no mistake about it. This book is called John. It's written by John. There's going to be many characters, many stories, many events. But all that will take a backseat to this. John is a book about Jesus. It's about his authority. It's about his goodness. It's about his power. It's about his love. It's about his divinity. It's about how there is no one else and nothing else like him. And this is incredibly helpful for us. Because we live and breathe and exist in a day and age where it feels and looks and sounds like darkness is winning. And if the most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus, then right here at the start of John, we have got to, church, we've got to get him in his rightful place. All of us, before, before we leave today, need to be certain that we have Jesus where he belongs. The Bible in 1 Peter 3, 15 tells us this, that we are to set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in our hearts. We're to make him different and unique than everything else. What that verse is saying is that there is ultimately one Lord in your life, and that Lord reigns in your heart. And you can know, you, it's not rocket science, you can know what this Lord is. When push comes to shove, what do you answer to? When everything else is equal, what, what do you serve? What do you value? What do you love? What do you give your time and money to? What, how about this? What dominates your thoughts and your dreams and your hopes more than anything else? That is your God. Whoever or whatever that is, that is your God. It is reigning as king in your heart. And the Bible is clear. Only Jesus deserves that throne. You were created. The fact that you exist, in fact, is to put Jesus as Lord in your heart. He's the only one worthy of that title. And what makes him worthy? What makes him deserve such an honor? Well, remember, nothing exists without him. For starters, you owe your existence. You owe your life. You literally owe everything you have to him. I mean, yeah, you could strut around with your chest puffed out like you deserve the credit for all you have. But none of it, nothing at all, including you, exists without Jesus. You're here because he allowed it. You're here because he made you. He deserves to be king in your life and in your heart because he's the sovereign ruler of the universe and he's good. And always, man, always when you talk about how he's good, it begs this question, why so much darkness still then? Why so much evil? Why, why so much illness? Why the strife? Why all the death? Why so much darkness? And Jesus, and Jesus alone, by the way, has an answer for that. Because here's what Jesus did for you that no one else did. He voluntarily inserted, inserted himself into the darkness. He didn't have to, but he did it anyway. The sovereign king of the universe left the security and glory of heaven, and he inserted himself in here to here, to become one of us, to walk where we walked, and to feel pain, and to feel hunger, and to feel thirst, and to feel fatigue, to feel all the effects of darkness that we live with. He came to the darkness. He enveloped himself in it. He opened himself up to the ridicule and hatred of people who owe everything to him. And after all that, he willingly took his, our sin on his own back and he endured the beatings and the whippings and the crown of thorns and the nails and the cross for us. He even went to the darkest of all places, death itself being laid in a tomb. 
And after all of that, despite all of that, maybe, in fact, in spite of all of that, in the midst of and in the face of darkness, he won. Light won. Joy won. Hope won. Life won. Jesus won. And he alone deserves to be Lord of your life because when he is, you get to win. But only if you're in him. See, I'm certain that as you sit there this morning, there's darkness before you. I'm certain because you live in this dark world. Some of you today, some of you in this room today are still in the darkness of your own sin. You've never asked Jesus to forgive you and be Lord of your life. And if your life ended today, you wouldn't win. You wouldn't have your sin debt covered. And so today you need, listen, you need more than anything else. You need to declare Jesus as Lord of your life for the first time. Ask him to save you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to do all those things that you can't do for yourself. You've searched long enough. You've asked enough questions. You've checked out enough. It's time simply to humbly submit. It's time just to tell him to take over. The others here today who are literally in the darkness of idolatry. And what I mean by that is you're not worshiping some strange statue in your living room. But you knew, didn't you? You knew the second that we described how to tell what is Lord in your heart, you knew that it wasn't Jesus. You knew that there's something lesser than him that you've given too much of your heart to. There's something lesser than him that you've given too much control to. There's something lesser than him that you've given priority to. And hear me. If you don't get that thing back in its right place, it will ruin you. Because Jesus is very jealous of his throne. So today you need to repent of that and rightly set apart Jesus and Jesus alone as Lord in your heart. And there are others today who are facing the darkness simply of circumstances in this fallen world. There are worries that you have, there are relationships that are crumbling, there are illnesses that stand before you, there are concerns at work, concerns about your future, about what's ahead, there are family issues, children that you just need God to intervene in a big way in their lives, and the darkness, whatever form it's taking, just feels like a cloud hanging over you. But today you simply need reminded that Jesus is who he says he is. And you need to do what all else need to do, to set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your heart. And when you do, you're going to be reminded of some really powerful truths. He never promises to change your circumstances. All right, listen, I'm not going to tell you some magic wand that you can wave over your life and everything gets really easy all of a sudden. But with him, listen, you can be untouchable. Because with him, you can have within you the power of the one who went through all the darkness you will ever face and who came out the other side undefeated. And what we want here at FBN, by the time this John series is over, is to be a collection of unified people who've all set apart Jesus as Lord in our lives. A unified collection, a collection of people who've surrendered everything to him, who have him in his rightful place, and become people who are untouchable. Who the world and our enemy and the troubles of this life can throw anything they want at us. And those, hit will hurt, those hits will hurt. They will inflict pain and suffering. They will cause confusion. But they simply will not defeat us. Because we have Jesus, the only one who's undefeated. For the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray.
God, we're thankful today for just the overt clarity of John. Lord, that within just a handful of sentences, we know at the start of this book that Jesus is not a role model that we should aspire to. He's not a good teacher. He's not a good guy. He is the sovereign, creative power, authority, and king of the universe. He is to be loved. He is to be feared. He is to be surrendered to. He is to be submitted to. And he is to be honored. And so, Lord, we pray for those in our midst who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time. God, I ask that they would do it right now. God, they'd let go of the struggle. They'd let go of this idea that somehow they're going to save themselves. They'd let go of, of whatever reservations they have and just finally humbly submit. And ask Jesus to take over their lives and forgive their sins in this moment right now. God, for those of us who have, we know, Lord, we know that with our sinful natures, there's so many things in our world that fight and claw and try to put themselves on the throne in our hearts where only Jesus belongs. So many, so many things that we consider good and right and fun that could, that could become evil if they're put in the wrong place. So God, I ask that you would, you would penetrate our lives with precise clarity and reveal the idols that exist in this room. That you show us clearly the things that we've made more important than you. And Lord, that we'd repent of those right now and receive your grace. And for those in our midst, God, who are in the circumstances of darkness, they're, they're just suffering, there's, there's worries, there's fears. God, I just pray that even though this hurts, even though this is difficult, that they would cling to Jesus as Lord of their life and that they would be undefeated because they have an undefeated Savior who's walking them through this. God, we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.